You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 15. From the foregoing studies, you will have seen how necessary it is to study man in his entirety if we would see how exact a copy he is in every way of the universe as a whole. It is specially important to receive this knowledge not only into our intellect, but also into our feeling and will. For only by regarding man in his totality as born out of the whole universe can a deeper understanding be gained for what Christianity wishes to be for the world. It might easily be objected that if this is so, we are asking modern humanity to develop a complex understanding of the details of the universe and of man before people can become complete and aware human beings. Yet, just reflect that this demand, which now approaches humanity as a cardinal one, is not peculiar to spiritual science. In order to show exactly what I mean, let me first ask, what demand did Christianity bring when it first came into the world? In reality, it asked for a very widespread understanding of the universe, one which could be traced back to ancient heathen conceptions but which has, in course of time, been completely forgotten. Just consider what has been gradually lost to man, in course of time, of the fundamental views and characteristics of Christianity. Christianity first appeared in such a way that it could only be understood by comprehending the nature of the Trinity, for instance, God the Father, God the Son, that is, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit. The manner in which Christianity understood these three aspects of the divine spiritual required an understanding of them no less demanding than that needed for such things as are given by spiritual science today. But all that leads to comprehension of this idea of Father, Son and Spirit has been gradually eliminated. It has been thrown out of an intelligible realm and become empty words, empty husks of words have alone been retained. For centuries man has had these empty word husks. This has gone so far that after having first dogmatically rejected them, people have begun to ridicule them. The best of men have ridiculed these empty husks. Ridicule has been poured upon them. Quote, dogmatic theology, close quote, it is said, quote, claims that one is three and three one, close quote. It is indeed a terrible delusion. It is sheer deception to believe that the Christian movement has ever demanded less understanding, less self-sacrificing knowledge than that demanded by modern spiritual science and demanded by it in order to regain Christianity. 
the most important and basic facts have been cast out of Christianity. And if we leave out of account that these live on in the different confessions as words, we can ask what really remains to us of the fundamental ideas of Christ himself. How does modern man discriminate between Christ and the universal cosmic God who can be found in the concept of Yahweh or Jehovah? I have drawn attention to the fact that even theologians such as Harnack do not discriminate. How many people today are clear about what the Spirit or Holy Spirit means? People have become so abstracted, satisfied with the mere empty husks of words. Either they remain in the churches and are satisfied, or if they are, as they call it, enlightened, they ridicule everything. What is given in empty husks of words can never have the power to cast light on the various realms of human knowledge. Only reflect how far we have actually gone in this direction. In ancient Greece, all knowledge at the same time contained a healing principle. The healer was a priest and at the same time the teacher of the people. That the teacher and priest was also a healer presupposes that something unhealthy was present in the whole process of civilization. Otherwise there would be no grounds for speaking of a healer. They spoke of the healer because their instinctive knowledge still gave them an understanding of the whole cosmic process, more comprehensive and intense than we possess today. Today man pictures the cosmic process as running its course in such a way that what comes later is always the effect of what was earlier. But this is not so in reality. An older instinctual knowledge was aware that this was not so. Today, people, especially those who speak of progress in the abstract, imagine that evolution is bound continually to ascend. We find this notion of an ascending evolution among the superficial philosophers of modern times. Someone who is simply carried along by the general prejudices of the time, such as Wilhelm Wundt, the non-philosopher, who has become the flavor of the month for many also spoke as a supposed philosopher of such, quote, universal progress, close quote, without the slightest knowledge of what the stream of human evolution really involves. We must realize that in the real stream of human evolution there is always a tendency to degenerate. There is no tendency toward progress there, least of all in history. There is a continual tendency instead toward degeneration and only because what we call teaching or knowledge works steadily against it, is that raised up which would otherwise be drawn down into the depths. Only in this way do we progress. Consider the child from this standpoint. The child is born. People speak of heredity, but we inherit only what would lead to decline. If the child were not educated by his whole environment, and later by school and by life, he would degenerate. Education is a preservative from degeneration. It brings healing. The old instinctive knowledge of man regarded as a healing process everything connected with knowledge, education, or priesthood. In olden times, the office of the doctor could not be separated from that of the priest. 
they were one and the same. Modern evolution has separated natural science from the science of soul and spirit, as I explained in yesterday's lecture. Thus, man leaves to medical science the healing of all that, according to Julius Robert Mayer, has nothing to do with human aims, but is concerned only with the use of the energy of the horses and its transmutation to heat in the horses, in the wagon axles, in the streets on which the wheels ran, and so forth. This is, roughly speaking, left to the physician, and people like Rubner in Berlin, who is only a representative of this mode of thought, calculate what is necessary to human life almost as though man were a kind of complicated stove. But now draw the social-ethical conclusion of such a view and recognize that if, of all that takes place in the transmutation of energy, the purposes and aims of man are only a secondary effect, then we are confronted with the possibility of believing that the world could get on without these secondary effects. As a matter of fact, that is really the secret belief of modern man, that the real consists only of the physical, and everything else is a, quote, afterthought, close quote, a secondary effect. In face of such a view, it would be only consistent to reject Christianity, as the materialists of the middle of the 19th century did. They actually carried the materialistic outlook to its logical conclusion by saying, if materialism is correct, then there is nothing for it but to ridicule the idea of any difference between a transgressor and a good man. For, of course, just the same amount of energy is transmuted into heat in the one as in the other. The questions that flash up in the world at the present time are really often questions of honesty, courage, and consistency. At a time when people do not possess this honesty in relation to the outer things of life, it is really surprising to find that it is lacking when we come to these cardinal questions. Thus it comes about that modern humanity still talks of Christ without really knowing that he must be distinguished from the universal God underlying all nature. If the Christ concept has been gradually changed into the simple God concept, that signifies a retrogression of humanity back to before the mystery of Golgotha. In order to understand Christianity rightly, it is necessary to take this principle of degeneration seriously and place in opposition to it the necessity of working out of something quite different from what bears the germ of degeneration within it. The attention of modern man must be drawn to the fact that at that time when the earth was moving, together with man, of course, toward the mystery of Golgotha. An event took place on earth which had significance not merely for humanity, but for all life on earth. To comprehend this, nature and spirit must of course be studied far more intensively than people tend to do today. In order to explain this, let me point back to something which lived in the consciousness of man, perhaps up to the 8th century before Christ. Man did not then perceive himself as an isolated being, as he does today, as he does nowadays. Today he feels himself as a being enclosed in his skin. But up to the 7th or 8th century B.C., he felt himself to be a member of the whole universe, 
participating in the whole universe. Grotesque as it may seem now, it is a fact that in those olden times man did not feel his head so strongly enclosed by his skull. He felt that what lived in his head extended into the cosmos and belonged to the whole starry heavens. Strange as it seems today, he felt himself in the sphere of the stars, for he felt his head in living connection with them. Thus he said to himself, When the night sky arches over me, it is really I myself dwelling there in my head's living communion with the stars. And he said to himself, When, after the night, the day appears, then the stars which rose on the one side set on the other, and in their place the sun rises. The configuration of the stars then no longer works in my head, for the sun takes the place of the starry heavens, and then my eyes are subject to the sun. And, because he vividly felt, quote, My eyes are subject to the sun when I am busy on earth during the day, close quote, he said to himself, quote, Just as now, in this earthly existence, my eyes are subject to the sun, so in the existence preceding the earth, we call it the moon stage, my whole head was a kind of eye, E-Y-E, not as now perceiving objects in a twofold way, but looking out into the cosmos. Then there were within me, in my brain, as many little eyes as there are stars. Out of these little eyes has grown all that lives now in my brain, and my sense eyes are but later products subject to the sun, as was my brain to the starry heavens. Therefore my brain has evolved from an eye, or really from many separate eyes, as many in number as the stars shining out there in the, in the night. Thus my brain has grown out of a sense organ, and the eye which I now have in my earthly existence, through which I am in communication with my earthly environment, will be an inner organ, as is now my brain, when earth evolution has been replaced by another planet, which, as you know, we call the Jupiter condition. What is now on my outer surface will draw into my inner being. People will then look different. What they now have as senses corresponding with their environment will form an inner organ in future times. Close quote. Ancient humanity felt this instinctively and said, quote, Light penetrates through the eye of my senses, but in my inner being I preserve the light of olden times. It works in me as thought. Thought was a sense perception before the earth entered on the earth stage of evolution when it was an earlier planet, and my sense perception will be thought in the future, close quote. In ancient times man perceived all this as wisdom, which he felt, quote, instinctively, close quote, as we should say today. The ancients did not throw about the word instinctive as is done today. They said, quote, it is the wisdom which the gods in heaven have brought down to us on earth, close quote, of what arose in them instinctively concerning the past, present, and future. They said, quote, this was brought to us by the immortals, this they represented in themselves to themselves in pictures. What does the Isis picture tell us? Quote, I am the all, 
I am the past, the present, and the future. No mortal has ever lifted my veil. The modern interpretation of this is really a strange one. People today think in materialistic terms about anything containing the term mortal. They do not think in the case of this saying of Isis, quote, I am the past, I am the present, I am the future. No mortal has yet lifted my veil, close quote. But they think of it as, quote, I am the past, the present, and the future. No man has yet lifted my veil, close quote. People of today do not reflect how, on the other hand, they hold themselves to be immortal and that therefore no mortal has ever lifted my veil, cannot be regarded as an ultimate conclusion. Novala said, quote, Well then, we must become immortal so that we may lift the veil of Isis. Close quote. Let us reflect on the underlying thought which modern materialistic humanity has produced. It takes some pleasure in this idea of Quote, I am the all, I am the past, the present, and the future. No man has yet lifted my veil, close quote. For man is thus spared the effort of lifting it. And the philosophers can teach that man has now reached the boundaries of knowledge. In reality, they mean that man is too indolent to tread the path of knowledge. They do not like to say this, so they say that man has reached the boundaries of knowledge beyond which he cannot go. In our age, which wants to be free of authority, these things are accepted, but they must not be carried into the future if man is to avoid decadence. It should not be overlooked that no one has the right to call himself a Christian who believes only in a general idea of progress and does not realize that if the earth had been left to itself since the mystery of Golgotha, it would have fallen into decadence. Hence it is necessary for us to oppose this decadence with something which we cannot obtain from the earth, nor from what the earth derives from, the Father God, but which must be obtained from God the Son and must be infused into the ongoing course of our evolution. To continually refuse to acknowledge the connection between the universe and the Christ event is to turn man aside from his present task. Think what it really means when Though attacked by Catholic and Evangelical confessions, spiritual science asserts that the Christ concept and the cosmos concept must be united. Quote, spiritual science, says these confessions, has no idea that Christ is only to be understood in an ethical sense as something relating, relating only to the moral order of the world. Close quote. If man believes the moral world order to be a secondary effect of the transmutation of energy, then the Christ concept relating only to this moral order also appears as a mere secondary effect in the cosmic system. We have spoken of one thing which an ancient instinctive knowledge of mankind was aware of, namely, that the human brain stands in relation to the starry sphere and that the human eyes are, in a certain way, ascribed and subject to the sun sphere. Going back into earlier periods, when man still possessed a qualitative knowledge of astronomy and of the earthly elements, we see that light was brought into relation with what is nearest our earth, with air. With their instinctive knowledge, the ancients could not think of light without air. 
modern thinkers with their abstract knowledge, do not bring what they explain as light into relation with air. Certainly they describe it in a wonderful way, as a vibratory movement of the ether, but in relation to air, the farthest they go is to regard the air as a medium through which light passes. It is really most remarkable how little people reflect upon what is simply held up as truth. Earth, infinite space, stars. Among these stars are some of are some whose light needs millions of years to reach the earth. Night falls. Here is a star whose light needs a shorter time to reach the earth. Just imagine for a moment, what do we have in the rays of its light? Certainly we do not see the star itself when we look in the direction of the light rays. The light ray which meets our eye, according to this theory, comes from something millions of years back. The source of light may even have perished long ago, but its light is still traveling to us. Nothing is told us of what is really out there in the cosmos. All we are told is how light waves are approaching, which may perhaps come from some still existing star, but which may also come from some star no longer there. We must acquaint ourselves with the way in which light phenomena as such appear to us in the phenomenon of air. For although light passes through apparently airless space, we do not see it in airless space, but only in air-filled space, for only in such can we exist. Thus we experience light and air together. In this way we can descend more deeply into the human constitution. We can go a step deeper through, as it were, living simultaneously in light and air. In the human head we can pass from the eyes to the nose. The nose and oriental philosophy knows a great deal about this. The nose is the organ through which one breathes in and breathes out. The eye is the receptive organ for light. The nose and eye are separated. The nose is adapted to the air, and all that is adapted to the air extends out to the world of the planets. The sun begins things by working on our eye, but everything else works on the rest of our constitution. And as we come down from the starry world into that of the sun and planets, we arrive in the case of man, as it were, at the nose. Then we come right down to the earthly, passing from the nose to the mouth to the organ of taste, and taking up the substances of the earth through that organ, we descend from the planetary into the earth world. We have the rest of man as an appendage, the head as appendage to the eyes, the breast as appendage of the nose, and all the rest of us, our limbs and metabolism, as appendage of the organ of taste. Thus we can apportion man, taking him in his totality to the starry world, the solar and planetary world, and the earth world. We have placed him into the whole universe, and when we look at his brain, inwardly, not outwardly, not by physical anatomy, but by inner knowledge, we see in the human head, inasmuch as it is the bearer of the brain, a direct reflection of the starry world. We see in all that extends from the nose to the lungs a copy of the planetary system with the sun. If we then consider the remainder, we see that part of man, which is earthbound, as are animals, in this way only 
do we arrive at the true parallel between man and the rest of the world. Thus should man be understood, right down to the smallest details. Consider for a moment the circulation of the blood. The blood, transformed by outer air, enters the left auricle, passes into the left ventricle, and from there branches off through the aorta into the organism. We can say that blood passes from the lungs to the heart and from there into the rest of the organism, also to the head. But in passing through the organism, the blood takes up nourishment, which contains all that is dependent on the earth. All that the digestive apparatus introduces into the circulation of the blood is earthly. What is introduced through the breathing when we bring oxygen into the blood flow is planetary. And then we have the blood circulation that goes to the head, to everything composing the head. Just as respiration of the lungs with its absorption of oxygen and giving out of carbon dioxide belongs to the planetary system, just as what is introduced through the digestive system belongs to the earth, so that smaller part of circulatory flow that branches off above belongs to the starry world. It is, as it were, drawn away from the aorta and then streams back and unites with the blood streaming back from the rest of the organism so that they flow together back to the heart. The circulation which branches off above says, as it were, to the whole of the rest of the circulation, quote, I do not share either in the oxygenating process nor in the digestive process, but I separate myself out. I invert myself upward, close quote. That belongs to the starry world. And the nervous system might be examined in a similar way. One arrives at no true understanding of man by studying his physical sense-perceptible aspect only. In so doing, we only find in the cranium that porridge described by physical anatomy. What anatomy describes is worthless in itself. It is, in reality, the confluence of forces of the starry heavens. To describe the physical brain by itself is like describing a rose by itself. That has no sense, for a rose is no separate isolated entity. It cannot be dissociated from its bush. It is nothing in isolation from its bush. So too the human brain is nothing in isolation from the starry heavens. Let us, however, here recall the true nature of the sun. Again and again I have emphasized how astonished the physicists would be if they could fit out an airship as they would so dearly love to and journey to the sun, imagining they would find there a glowing ball of gas. They would not find this, but a suction sphere, trying to absorb everything possible into itself, really a vacuum or empty space, nay, even less than empty, negative matter. Within the sun there is nothing comparable to our matter. It is not merely empty, but less than empty. It is blank, just like a hole, in comparison with the rest of matter. It is really important that one should not, in these days, speculate on things that do not accord with reality, but fill oneself instead with the spirit of reality. 
I have recently said a good deal on the theory of relativity. You will remember what I said about Einstein's box, which is supposed to refute the theory of gravity. Another claim of Einstein's is that even the dimension of a body is merely relative and depends on the rapidity of movement. Thus, according to the Einstein theory, if someone moved through space with a certain velocity, he would not retain his bulk but would become as thin as a sheet of paper. This is discussed in all seriousness. Such dwelling in thoughts foreign to reality forms the science, in quotes, of today. And it is the opposite pole to what we have, on the other hand, as faith. The physician has been relegated to the purely physical domain, the priest to what is purely of the soul. As for spiritual, it has been abolished. But when it comes to considering everything beyond the physical as secondary, horses, coach, these are real to the physical senses. And the horse's energy, transmuted into heat, heat of the horses, heat of the axles, and heat of the furrows of the road, well, it cannot even be considered a fifth wheel of the wagon, for it is less than that. It is a mere afterthought, a secondary effect. As regards the priest, one cannot even say that he is the fifth wheel of the wagon. But what does he achieve if all the rest is secondary? When doctors such as Julius Robert Mayer make philosophy, it becomes physics. And when the adherents of soul substance, or whatever it is, make philosophy, it becomes abstract concepts. And the two world streams flow on side by side, quite foreign to one another. The materialistic physician of the middle of the nineteenth century and the preaching pastor. They have really neither understood nor even paid attention to one another, At most, perhaps, they have contended politically. A time has assuredly now come in which there is but little honesty or consistency, and this state of things must be seriously combated and overcome. We have not only to combat ill will, but what perhaps has also to be taken into account, namely all kinds of stupidity and ignorance, that is how things are. And so, if I may sound a personal note, let me draw your attention especially to the fact that I intend to give three lectures on the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas at Whitsun, footnote, see titled The Redemption of Thinking, Anthroposophic Press, New York, 1983, end of footnote. I do not know whether our opponents will attack our right to study Thomas Aquinas here. As you know, an order of the Pope Leo Thirteenth declared the doctrine of Thomas Aquinas to be the official philosophy of the Roman Catholic Church, and I wonder whether our approach will be described as unlawful propaganda issuing from Dornach. We will wait and see. Let the wind whistle from whatever quarter. We will await it. But perhaps it is well that we should once meet all the talk that comes from that particular direction with a serious study of the teachings of Thomas Aquinas. The end of Lecture 15